This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. The study of Islam is often focused on subjects involved in legal debates or ritual practice. But our understanding of Muslims should also be informed by everyday practices found in the suburbs. In Suburban Islam, Justine Howe examines the social and spiritual contexts of Muslims living outside of Chicago. Her study focuses on a third space for American Islam, a community space called the Web Foundation and its membership. Muslim identity for many web members is shaped by shared ideals about consumer culture, leisure activities, parenting, and the construction of family life. The fluid and open nature of the community provides room for debate and discussion about gendered practices, racial and ethnic divisions within the Muslim community, or religious pluralism. In the growing body of scholarship on Muslims in America, Suburban Islam adds a unique vantage point that greatly adds to our overall vision of the community within American religious history. In our conversation, we discuss the history of Islam in Chicago, female authority, pluralism in the Quran, consumerist practices, the public celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday, adult educational programming, book groups, jurisprudence classes, religious devotion, an American-Muslim suburban culture. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Now, my conversation with Justine Howe about Suburban Islam, published with Oxford University Press in 2018. Welcome, Tina. Thanks for joining us here on New Books in Islamic Studies. Excited to talk about your book, Suburban Islam. Um... Thanks for for making the time to talk about it. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. So this is a a really interesting book I found. um, I think it does a lot of stuff in terms of uh, thinking about Islam in America in perhaps new angles or new ways, uh, at least exploring new types of sites for what American Muslims are doing. Uh, But I think also people that are interested in American religious history will gain a lot from this as well as they might see some of... uh, the overlaps uh, in in various communities. So, I hope lots of people will will read the book. Um, before we get into it, uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what brought you to the study of religion, to Islamic studies, uh, perhaps mentors or or moments that uh, kind of steered you in the direction of how you got interested in this topic or the approaches that you take. What what made you the scholar you are today? 
Absolutely. Well, I think like a lot of scholars of religious studies, I came to the field in a kind of roundabout way. I was a history major at Williams College, and that's where I took my first classes in religious studies and in Islamic studies. And I was really fascinated by those courses. And then I spent my junior year at Oxford, which was just after 9-11. And the experience of living abroad during that tumultuous time, as well as taking various courses, uh, primarily in the study of European colonialism, sparked my interest in Islam. And so that was, I suppose, in the back of my mind as I graduated and went on to teach history at an all-girls school in Philadelphia. And there I met some of the first Muslims uh, in the form of my students who were, uh, you know, American Muslims um, born and raised in Philadelphia. And I was really interested by many of the conversations that I had with them about things like observing Ramadan. So conversations I would have with their parents and with them about sort of how they went about their um, daily practice. And so from there, I, I, I taught for two years, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, and at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where I did most of my courses in Islamic studies, but it was also the first place where I really learned about what was happening in the Chicago community in that post-9-11 period. And so that was the the first time where I really got drawn into a lot of the exciting kind of institutional changes that were taking place um, among Chicago's Muslims. Also to the history of the community, it's very long history in Chicago, the diversity of many of the Muslim communities there. And so that was where the sort of, I think, seed was planted that I could uh, pursue an academic project on Islam in America. Um, but at the time, I was actually doing more research on family life in other contexts. So I was doing research in Morocco um, during my master's period, uh, both at, at the University of Chicago and then later when I did my PhD at Northwestern. So I hadn't really quite settled on what were going to be the, you know, what was going to be the dissertation project and the focus of my academic life. Um, so it was really at Northwestern where I really cultivated that interest in doing a project on Islam in America. And one of the things to keep in mind is that back in the, in the early 2000s, when I was first starting out, it was very unusual for uh, PhD students in Islamic studies to focus on American Islam. And I had many discussions with mentors about whether such a thing was even possible, whether it, I would get a job or whether anyone would want to read a book on Islam in America. Um, but there was this turning point, you know, and, and there were enough kind of, there was enough support for me doing that, that kind of project. So I decided to go for it. Um, and so at Northwestern, uh, you know, I really was part of a, of a faculty and students that a really great cohort that were engaged in the study of lived religion in a variety of contexts, both in the United States, but also in other um, parts of the world. And so the, that I think is the, is the main theoretical approach that informs the book, which is to explore religion as it is 
practiced in its daily life in these sort of messy and complicated encounters between practice and text and politics, and to really take seriously the ways in which people describe what it is they're doing and understand their place in the world. Um, And so I found that many of the issues that I was interested in exploring uh, I could do in the context of of the Chicago um, community. So I would say that that I got really drawn into some of the really exciting um, things that were happening in um, in the local community, and so that's sort of how I ended up focusing for this particular project. Now, um, within Chicago, you focus on the Web Foundation. Um, now, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the Web Foundation is all about and its history? Uh, where does it sit in the history of Islam in Chicago, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, uh, I know you're very much engaged in American religious history. So uh, where might we think about it within that context as well? Yeah, so the Web Foundation is a family-based institution in the far western suburbs of Chicago. So if you drive about 25 to 30 miles to the west of the loop, you end up in um, an area that's formerly known as the Research and Technology Corridor uh, that is a, they're sort of an ex, it's an exurb community, a far suburban community that uh, really has its origins in the post-war period. And the Webb Foundation was founded by a group of families of varying racial backgrounds just after 9-11, who were seeking to create a different type of community for themselves and their children during a time of immense uncertainty and uh, immense scrutiny of, um, of the American Muslim community. And so they decided that they wanted to form a new community that they could socialize basically hang out together, and also to have educational programs centered in uh, both for both adults and for children. So the I would say 9-11 was the impetus for the creation of the organization in the sense that it very much got off the ground in that immediate time. But many of my conversation partners described how they wanted to create this community because they had already felt immense dissatisfaction with their local mosques. And there are a couple of reasons for this that I explain at length in the book. And one of them is that a lot of Web Foundation members grew up in the Western suburbs as either um, first or second generation immigrants. So the sons and daughters of the post-1965 generation of, of immigrants who many of them had the financial resources to sort of bypass the city and to settle in these far Western suburbs that were more or less newly created. Um, and in this far Western suburban community are some of the largest mosques in the Chicago area. They, many of them have thousands of members And they often cater to a particular ethnic or national group. And so, um, for example, the Islamic Foundation in Villa Park, which was founded in the 1970s, they it's it's it has for um, for much much of its history catered primarily to a Pakistani 
membership, though people of various backgrounds attend that mosque. Um, it's rather that the orientation of the mosque is is centered in a particular ethnic um, ethnic origin. So many of the Web Foundation members maybe grew up attending mosques like the Islamic Foundation. And they have actually very fond memories of those experiences. But as they grew up, the vision of American Islam and the vision of Islam in general that these mosques were uh, promoting did not resonate with their understanding of what Islam was. And crucially, it didn't necessarily resonate with their everyday experiences in their own families. So one of the demographic changes that happened and uh, in many American uh, Muslim communities, and this would also, I think, be analogous for Catholics and Jews and other um, immigrant uh, religious communities, is that American Muslims began to marry outside of their particular sort of extended kin networks or, um, or ethnic origins. And so you had many married couples who were from different uh, ethnic or national backgrounds. <clears throat> And the question became for them in the uh, late 80s and early 90s when they were having their children, which mosque do we attend? Because it doesn't necessarily resonate with their own particular forms of practice. And this became even more complicated when people would marry converts. Um, and so who, who wouldn't necessarily have that kind of ethnic um, affiliation or identity. So these were long-standing demographic concerns that um, that were raised, changes in, in uh, Chicago's Muslim community. And then after 9-11, many of the web members were dismayed with the ways that existing Muslim communities and Muslim authorities like imams were representing Islam to the American public. So the Web Foundation grew out of first of all, trying to, for these families to create spaces of religious and national belonging for themselves and for their children. But it was also from an early stage linked to the representation of Islam. And it ties into a sort of central question, I think, for many American Muslims, that is a community that is incredibly diverse in its and its makeup in all sorts of different ways. I focus on race and ethnicity here, but we can talk about it in any number of dimensions, and all of them are represented at the web community. But that they, um, one of the one of the sort of central questions is who speaks for Islam in the United States, and many web members wanted that representation to be more aligned with their vision and to reflect their uh, particular demographic as middle class, professionally successful, um, fairly, you know, well integrated into their local neighborhoods. They wanted that vision of American Islam to be the one that took center stage during this time of, in, you know, of scrutiny and surveillance. So, um, and in terms of the name, the Webb Foundation is named for Muhammad Alexander Russell Webb, who was the late 19th century a uh, Protestant convert to Islam who had a very fascinating life that involved a sojourn to the, the he was originally a, a journalist, but then he was um, sent to the Philippines as a, as a consul in the late um, 19th century. And that's where he converted to Islam. And then he returned to the United States and tried to launch these various um, Islamic missions. And he had salons and different publications 
And, um, and then uh, by, by happenstance, ended up serving as the representative for Islam at the 1893 World's Parliament of Religions. So Muhammad Alexander Russell Webb is very much this figure that is kind of iconic in, the, in American religious history, but he also has served a very important role in the, the history of Chicago itself. And so the, the um, Webb community chose this, um, this person to be the, the namesake of their organization because he represented for them someone who was part of uh, the long history of Islam in the United States. Um, and that also uh, had served in this kind of spokesperson, this spokesperson role. And they also felt that he was, uh, one of the web founders described to me the process of how they went about choosing web as the, the name for the organization. And she it was a very fascinating moment in my fieldwork. She turned to me and said, well, we could have chosen Malcolm X, but the reality is, you know, we live in we live in the far western suburbs this place that is, is at the time was heavily evangelical fairly conservative in its political outlook and she said you know we want to make our islam recognizable to our neighbors to our christian neighbors who you know she recognized that for other american muslims malcolm x would be the figure that they would look to right for carrying their particular vision but she there there is always this concern of the alignment of the community, not just with their own experiences, but also with how their understanding of Islam is also related to the expectations of their neighbors. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting too. Um, so something that's, uh, you know, web is kind of a unique space and you, you talk about it um, from a theoretical standpoint as this third space. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, later on in your, um, uh, ethnography your uh, your participants start self uh, referring it to as a third space which is kind of interesting as well um but can you can you talk about maybe why um in the, the kind of range of scholarship on islam in america uh why thinking about the web foundation as this third space and what you mean by that is kind of um innovative in in, in the scholarship uh on muslim americans yeah, so you already pointed to one of the kind of one of the developments that happened in the course of my research, which was that my participants started calling the space, the web community, a third space, which was already the term that I had uh, sort of settled on as the the theoretical category that I wanted to use to talk about this community in its the ways in which it functioned as a um, as a space where a lot of experimentation, open conversation, flexibility, uh, the sort of kind of bottom up uh, organizing energy uh, was was taking place. So there was this kind of convergence between the my conversation partners using this term and how I use it. There is a major distinction between though how they use it and how I use it, and. So at the web community, the uh, third space referred to, when they use the term, it refers to the fact that the web foundation is not the mosque and it's not the home. It's something else. So it's, it's a third space. So it had this kind of institutional demarcation. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is to show how, in fact, 
the web community maintains its particular connections and how individual members maintain their connections to the mosque and to the home and especially to their extended families, even as they've tried to carve out this distinctive space. But it's it's by no means autonomous or completely disconnected from these other institutional sites for American Islam. Um, so I wanted to at, at the time when I was when I was conducting research, I what I found so fascinating about the web community and so important was the what was the ways in which the community served as a place for its members to explore what what many of them call sort of their true selves or to sort of become the American Muslim that they always wanted to be, that it was this, it was both a site that was on the margins in the sense that it was sort of experimental, it was new, its future was fairly uncertain at the time when I was conducting fieldwork which was sort of nerve wracking for me. What if I go on and read, you know, go on to write a book about an organization that no longer exists, but fortunately that doesn't seem to be the case. The community is growing and it seems to be fairly robust, but, um, but right, this sort of space that, that was new and emergent, and yet it served as this site of incredible sort of self-realization for its members, or at least that's how they described it. And so it was, it was this that I was the most drawn to, because I think that in the study of religion, we still have a tendency to want to look to religious sites that seem to be stable and enduring, and to view religion as a place where things get resolved in the sort of anxiety of, um, of politics and and various other social forces. And I found that in the web community, while it was true that many of them, certainly um, the, their, the community served as this place where um, people could embrace new identities, promote new visions, put forward new interpretations or pose questions about their faith. The, this process didn't necessarily resolve anything necessarily. In fact, I use third space as a way to get at how religion, you know, can on the one hand produce new forms of community and belonging and that but in that process there are new anxieties, new uncertainties that come about as a result of that of that process. Um and so it was that dynamism that I wanted to that I wanted to capture in in the book and and I also in the study of American Islam and and in the study of even within the study of Islam I think there's been um, a lot of focus on sort of these major institutional sites and you know I think that ethnography is is so important because it enables us to look to these fairly these these sites that are not as visible and yet can be absolutely essential for the people that construct them and participate in them and make them what they are. Um, so it was this, this connection, this connection between community and selfhood that I wanted to, um, wanted to explore by using, by using third space. Can you talk a little bit about your ethnography as well? Because, um, this I think brings a lot of life to the, the book. Um, what challenges did you face? How did you navigate and connect with your subjects? 
um, and what what am I might have changed over time? Yes. Yeah, so I, you know, I approach ethnography. It's it's a relationship that you know is formed over time and is incredibly dynamic and and can't uh, really be encapsulated necessarily in one moment. But um, I think there were a couple instances where I that signaled to me that certain aspects of my relationship to the white community had changed. And I, I think that at first, you know, the community as a, is predicated on the idea that American Muslims need to be more open and welcoming to non-Muslim Americans. Um, and so that, that American Muslims should try to educate uh, their non-Muslim neighbors about Islam, and that it should their event should be open to anyone who who wants to come. So I, you know, was an ethnographer who wanted to come and attend events, and so it, it was that they were always very welcoming and supportive of my presence. But I found that I f- was still very much kind of looking in from the outside for the first part of my fieldwork. And it was actually a life circumstance that changed my relationship to my conversation partners. And that was when I became um, pregnant with my, with my son. And, you know, in essentially instantly when I became clear that I was, was pregnant, my relationship changed to, to many of my conversation partners. And I think that it made me a more vulnerable, you know, we talk a lot about vulnerability in the, in the practice of ethnography and, and it made me someone who needed to be taken care of, who needed advice, who needed to be sort of imparted wisdom. And I think it was also, you know, what the web foundation is, is centered on the practice of religion in families and especially around the education of young children and the parent-child relationship. And so becoming a mother myself was uh, made me sort of part of that kind of nexus of moral value. And so that, that, was, a, that was a really important uh, sort of turning point in, in my ethnography. Now, um, in, in the first half of the book, you, you take us through lots of different subjects. Um, so perhaps um, I don't need to ask you about uh, individual ones, but can you give us an idea? Uh, p- part of what you do is show how um, the web community uh, critiques uh, both kind of the, the local and then broader context of uh, Muslim life uh, and Muslim institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in another chapter, you also uh, look at how um, they kind of uh, uh, go through a social formation of uh, an American Muslim in terms of uh, ideals they have um, that fit into uh, consumer culture and leisure activities and parenting and construction of the family. Um, so could, could you kind of just point us to what, what are some of the, the, the broader strokes of uh, both uh, what the web community members uh, see as ideals and, and what kind of things they're critiquing uh, in the larger Muslim community? Absolutely. So there are two major... I would say strains that the web community sees itself in opposition to. So one is I already mentioned, which was the kind of ethnic particularism of local mosques. So that the web community objects to 
um, the representation of ethnic, what they see, right? They see as ethnically based identity as universal Islam. So for example, in terms of dress, members of the web community, for example, some of them wear shawar kameez, the South Asian um, uh, mode of, of dress, but many of them do not. And when, when asked about these sorts of sartorial choices, many of them said, well, it's completely fine to wear various modes of, of dress. We don't, we don't think that one is more Islamically sanctioned than another. The same with hijab. There were a wide range of um, sort of headscarf and head covering choices among women at the web community. And so they very much um, don't want to see choices that they, that are imposed on them as religiously normative that they ascribe to a particular ethnic or national or racial uh, affiliation or identity. So there's that that they that they opposed uh, that they are opposed to. And then um, secondly, they also voice objection to what they call Wahhabi influence in American Muslim institutions and. Um, one that what they mean by Wahhabi is not necessarily the uh, ideology that comes out of Saudi Arabia per se, but rather a revivalist oriented ideology. Um, the, in the book, I, I think the more accurate term for what what the web community is is objecting to is Salafism. Um, and this is an orientation that is geared towards practicing a universal Islam that is, more um, pristine that goes back to the first generations of Muslims or the Salaf, and that is uncorrupted by by culture. And so the common thread of their objection to both of these orientations is that neither one allows American Muslims to fully enmesh themselves in the particular culture of their local context. For Americans, it's the U.S. context. For, but but web, the members of the web community understand or they they believe that Muslims around the world should embrace the local culture wherever they are, and that in doing so they're actually fulfilling a divine obligation to um, to sort of make Islam, which they understand to be a universal faith, fully realized in its local context. So they are seeking to do this through a variety of practices. And when I originally started the project, I was looking primarily at the educational programs that Webb was doing. So they hold adult classes, for example. So I write about, for example, how the Webb community, it's in its adult, um, adult education classes, read the Quran and try to apply its verses to their particular local circumstances. So I was looking at those practices. But then as I got further into the project, I realized that this, that in fact, the most important practices for the web community and sort of realizing this vision of Islam were in roughly the category that we might call consumerism and in particular practices associated with leisure. So the web community plans a number of parent-child or family-based 
activities um, throughout the year. Some of them are regular. They happen every year. For example, the annual father-son football game. Some of them are more um, sporadic. So a family might suggest that everyone go apple picking, for example. Um, and these these practices, I, I are they seem to be not necessarily in the realm of our common sense understanding of religion. But in fact, it's one of these rituals, and I describe them very deliberately in the book as rituals because they have a particular set of expectations and a kind of script that are followed, and then a set of outcomes that its participants expect. So in the case of father-son football, for example, this was a um, idea that a couple fathers had. And there are a number of um, reasons that they gave for why they wanted to, to have this game. And one of them is that they just wanted to do what they were already doing, but they wanted to do it as Muslims. So, you know, as one father told me, well, we play football on the weekends with our sons. So we just thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun if the web community had a football game? So this is the idea that they wanted, as I talked about before, they wanted a religious community that reflected their everyday lives. And in their everyday lives, this is one of the things that they do. Um, and, but then, of course, you know, I, I was really taking inspiration from David Chittister and others who have written about this serious side of, of popular culture, the, the ways in which it, it can sort of define people's understanding, constitute people's understanding of ultimate value. And, you know, the, the father-son football game plays an important role in their construction of a vision of American Islam in which um, Muslims are full participants and, in fact, are promoting football um, as the kind of now as the American national national game. And its organizers talked very explicitly about how they chose football over certain other sports. For example, it couldn't be soccer. Soccer doesn't carry the same political resonance as, uh, you know, as, as football does. And then finally, these um, parent-child events carry with them enormous importance for gender and the sort of future of American Islam. So, the um, one of the things that I point out in the book is that the vast majority of parent-child activities at Web are for fathers and their children. So it's father-son football and it's father-daughter camping. Um, very few of the events are geared towards for for parents and children are geared towards mothers. And I think this is because there's this, there's a couple of different reasons. I think one is that the Web community wants to cultivate the idea that fathers should be um, involved in child rearing and they should take an active role. And then they also want to sort of represent in contrast to the very negative way that fathers, that Muslim fathers are presented in the American media as sort of intensely authoritarian and often violent, um, that in fact they are nurturing and loving both of their um, sons and their daughters. And so these gendered concerns then also dovetail with class ones. So um, in order to participate in a father-son football game on a weekend, right, this is predicated on a particular schedule 
in which a work schedule, right, in which there are um, times set aside for leisure that that people with regular, more regular, or or have control over their schedules, their work schedules, can actually accomplish. So there are many sort of complicated ways in which Web is seeking to create an alternative to what they see as these two dominant strains in in American Islam. And to really not only make it permissible to engage in American cultural activities, but in fact, to argue that it's a religious obligation to do so. Not to not that everyone has to play football, but rather that in some way to become fully part of the local, um, of your local context and not to be isolated or attempt to sort of carve out a separate space, but rather to be fully enmeshed. This is where the web community... Um, for its members, they really talk about how um, they felt this was how they realized what it means to be an American Muslim. Yeah, and that that chapter, I, I really like uh, how you navigate that because it's not um, things that we think of as religious uh, in many ways. So um, you do a really good job of kind of showing this this, this live religion uh, as it works out. Um, now, the, the second half of the book, you kind of do uh, case studies, and, and the first one you look at is uh, the public celebration of the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. Um, so could you, could you tell us what this event's all about and uh, how Webb structures the celebration, who participate, mm-hmm. uh, participates in it, and then how, how do Muslims respond to this, uh, perhaps a little more broadly? Yes, yeah, so the Maulid is... Generally speaking, a celebration in honor of the Prophet Muhammad, usually in the month of his birth, and the Maulid, you know, is practiced around the world by various Muslim communities. Um, in the United States, up until um, more recently, I would say in the last couple of decades, Maulids were often performed in in the home. Um, so it would be in the context of sort of family or extended family and friends celebrations. And they typically entail recitations of different um, litanies that are, or, and, and sort of poems that are devoted to the prophet Muhammad. And they, um, depending on the particular uh, tradition or, um, or context, they can also involve um, songs, nasheeds. Um, so they, they have a variety of different kinds of ritual elements. They often also involve a uh, meal. And in the context of domestic mallets, they're often performed by women. So the Web Foundation started doing these large-scale maulids about 10 years ago. And so they would have them in big hotels and they would invite um, sort of internationally or nationally renowned scholars to them. So here, I haven't talked much about this already, but the web community is very much inspired by a group of scholars in the United States that um, Jonathan Brown calls the sort of late Sunni traditionalists. So these are scholars who are promoting um, the sort of recovery of the Islamic tradition and crucially also elements of Sufi um, Sufi ritual of which the Maulid um, certainly falls under that rubric um, and are seeking to make those once again kind of normative, again, to counterbalance the sort of Salafi, um, Salafi influence. And so the Web Foundation started doing these, what they call the Grand Maulids, in um, in the mid two uh, 2000s and 
they have actually, one of the things that I explore in the book is that the, the Maulid is a particularly well-suited ritual for the web community because it has this kind of flexibility around sort of what its content is in terms of the songs um, and the, the recitations, also in terms of, um, of who can participate. So it's, it's uh, fairly inclusive. And it also is a ritual that appeals to, to families. So um, as I document in the book, the web has, web has experimented with a variety of different possibilities for, for the Maulid. And so they're, they, the first one I attended was mostly in, um, in Urdu and in Arabic with some English. Um, and it, it represented a sort of multi-generation, appealed across generations. So this is what, um, when I was talking about how third spaces aren't entirely separate from other spaces, this is um, how I go, I seek to sort of talk about that. Because this, this Maulid was designed to sort of involve parents and grandparents and people who speak different languages and might come from a wide variety of different um, of backgrounds and to sort of appeal to as many people as possible. So they do mallets like that, and the, when they do ones that are that are um, that are that, they often um, get hundreds of people. So while the web community, you know, in a given Sunday has about a hundred people that come to its educational and social programs, um, you know, for the mallet we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of participants. So a much wider wider net. Um, and but then the the web community over the years has also experimented with other types of mallets. So um, I attended a, another one that I describe in the book that was in, conducted entirely in English. And it had a number of um, elements that people in the broader community considered uh, controversial. For example, instead of the sort of standard prayers and poems, um, they featured the spoken word uh, poetry of a local um, Black um, female Muslim artist. And the, there was considerable even discomfort in the web community itself about sort of what, the, what that was. They weren't sure it was a mallet. But I think that as I, as I talk about, again, this is one of these places where religion doesn't necessarily resolve things. So the reason why they wanted to have an all English mallet was because as, as its planners told me, you know, English is their vernacular. It's their, it's the language that they, that, that web members speak. And so when they're um, honoring the prophet Muhammad, they want to use the language that is their native tongue. And, and this is, um, and they, they made arguments that this is, you know, when you're talking about malas that are conducted in Urdu, it's, it's, it's similar. Um, and they felt that they wanted to cultivate the, that relationship with the prophet through through this kind of experimentation. Um, but they so on the one hand, it was a little bit of a ritual failure in the sense that I don't think they have gone back to that form. But on the other hand, no one seemed particularly troubled that this had had happened. Um, and so I think that. You know, this this is the sort of um, this is what I mean about third spaces that can be highly generative of of both in the in the sense that the where the web community described wanting to revive the mallet, right? Wanting to make it a centerpiece of American Muslim piety, and 
So they're on the one hand trying to revive uh, what they understand to be a core ritual in the Islamic tradition. And then they're at the same time trying to um, bring it into most, the most fully as they can to realize its potential in the American context. Um, and so these are these are sort of the dynamics that are that are unfolding in the, in the case of the Malids. And then one of the interesting things about I didn't write about it so much in the book, but I've written about elsewhere is that Malids have become increasingly popular in the Chicago area. So one of the questions I get a lot about the Web Foundation is, okay, well this is this is this case study that you explore, and then what's its broader influence? Well, I actually think that the revival of the Malid. And the popularity of thinkers like Omar Farouk Abdullah and other um, of these traditionalist-oriented scholars who are linked to transnational Sufi networks, uh, mainly through the Baal and others, that, that the web community has, has popularized this uh, mode of piety and made the Maulid a much more um, important ritual for American Muslims and one that occurs largely outside of the mosque context and often through the organization of people that are um, that do it kind of again we want to organize this community that's that's centered on ritual right on this performance of this ritual that we're going to do more regularly um, so th- these are the sort of um, I would say testifies to the influence of the web community more broadly. Now, um, another thing uh, that you focus on in the later chapters is um, these adult educational programming um, that are kind of rooted uh, with the foundation. And one of the central topics that comes up is this this idea of religious pluralism, uh, which you mentioned uh, in a couple places in the book. Uh, but in this particular chapter, you look at um, ways of reading the Quran, um, which you call an ethnography of reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um, how these how these classes work and uh, what issues stuck out for participants, what types of interpretive strategies uh, did they employ? And um, also you talk a little bit about how non-Muslim readings uh, kind of inform debate. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, how do both Muslim and non-Muslim interpretations uh, play, play a role in there? Yes. So I found the discussions on the Quran that I observed to be utterly fascinating from a variety of perspectives. I mean, one of the one of the most important things that happened when I was doing ethnography in the, in the very early weeks was that I would sit in on these discussions and the questions that were being asked and even the statements being made about the Quran, if you were to just pick up a standard text on, you know, description of the Quran, sort of Wikipedia version, or even some academic accounts, they would tell you that Muslims would never say these things about the Quran, right? They would never talk about, for example, um, you know, the possibility of errors in the Quran. And, And here I was sitting at the Web Foundation, and there was pretty open debate about a wide variety of, of issues that, you know, I just was not expecting in that kind of space. And so this is because the, the classes, as I observed them, were run essentially as discussions. So they were fairly analogous to the college classroom. And in fact, they, they're, um, they were led by a, a professor of Islamic studies, um, Omar Razafar, who is um, 
is a is also the chaplain, the Muslim chaplain at Loyola University of Chicago, and then teaches a variety of Islamic studies classes in the area. And he also gives sermons and lectures, and he teaches very various community classes like the ones at at the Webb Foundation. And you know, and um, and Omar really led the class as an open discussion. He wanted to create a context in which people could feel at liberty to ask questions and to really engage the text and to see how it might apply to their to their daily lives. Um, and so one of the most persistent themes to come up in the, in the Quran class was this question around religious pluralism. And there are a number of reasons for this. One is that the Quran has a number of statements about Christians and Jews and other faiths. And it's, it's very difficult to distill those verses into a singular pronouncement about what the Quran says about, well, it's very difficult to say that about any topic in the Quran, but, but religious pluralism is, is certainly one of them. And um, so there was that, the Quranic material itself, right, generates a lot of debate about what is actually the, the sort of central message concerning other faiths. But secondly, I think that this was, you know, in the context of the post 9-11 moment where Muslims are under intense pressure to demonstrate that they accept Christianity and Judaism in particular as the sort of Abrahamic faith, this, this um, prevalent ideology, that, you know, the, the, the question of religious pluralism was also a very urgent one for them, because um, one of the central tensions is, on the one hand, um, you know, the, the majority of the majority of, um, of web participants you know, they have Christian friends and they, in those experiences, they would affirm, right, that yes, absolutely, Christians are going to go to heaven or Christianity is a faith that's on par with Islam. Um, and so they very much uh, wanted to sort of affirm those relationships that they had. Um, and then on the other hand, the there was a tension with the the desire to preserve Islam's distinctiveness and even its superiority. Um, and, you know, you can find in the Quran uh, justifications for both. And so um, one of the things that I, I look at in the, in the book is how the web participants use um, the uh, occasions of revelation, which is a um, hermeneutical tool developed by classical Muslim interpreters to talk about the particular circumstances under which a verse was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. And what I found was that when the, um, is that the, the students use the occasions of revelation strategically in order to affirm their, the various positions that they, that they wanted to, that they wanted to use. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that in the context of, of their, um, the, one of the things that I wanted to show is that it's not like that discussion space was closed off from broader discussions about the Quran and what it was um, in the Amer in sort of American popular media and cultural discourse where the Quran was really, um, is really vilified as being violent or intolerant. Um, and so the students were also grappling with those interpretations of their text. And so what I really found was that these were spaces that were incredibly capacious. They were spaces where um, there were a lot of competing um, interpretations among the students themselves. 
even though many of them share very, very similar class backgrounds, educational backgrounds, um, uh, and and still they were it very much undermines the idea that Islam is a monolith or that uh, American Muslims speak with one voice. In fact, right, these all you have to do is spend one session sitting in on these discussions of the Quran, and you understand the very wide range of interpretations that um, that the web community brings. And then I would say the other goal of that chapter and the one on on fiqh and um, Sharia is is to demonstrate how um, the the web community can serve as a case study not just for American religions, right, and what the particular context of the United States produces in terms of religious community, but also how what is happening in the in the web space is connected to much broader debates within Islamic studies and in contemporary Islamic communities around the world around these questions of, you know, of revelation and its role in the modern world around how to, you know, textual interpretation and how it should be conducted, uh, questions around religious authority and tradition. So these are very much live debates that are not unique to American Muslims by any stretch. And so I try in the book to sort of to, to bring those in as well, because I think they're certainly relevant to understanding how it is that the what is happening in this particular space, um, what what the students are sort of bringing to that um, in terms of what they understand the Quran to be and their relationship to the text. Yeah, yeah, and um, this chapter on um, Islamic law is interesting um, in the sense that. Uh, Part of the reason why people are becoming interested in this uh, is shaped by the American um, kind of public sphere. So can you talk um, about what, why were debates about Islamic law and ethics of, of growing importance uh, at this, this moment and um, what issues became of interest to the participants that were in these classes and, and what do they hope to accomplish by engaging in these more complex legal and ethical conversations? Yes. So when I was conducting fieldwork in 2009, 2010, a little bit in 2011, this was the height of the anti-Sharia bills going through various state legislatures and the sort of push um, by various right-wing think tanks to, to outlaw Sharia and to make it, um, you know, sort of forbidden to for, for Muslims to to practice it, and it was represented in, um, you know, in, in the American media as as antithetical to liberal democracy. Um, and so, the web community had a class then, an adult education class in 2010 that focused on on fic. And um, you know, this is very much a product of um, how American Muslims are often transformed into being spokespeople for their entire faith. So. The course, you know, many, many of the students in the class told me, well, I don't know, I, I know what God expects of me, but I don't know how to explain it to other people. I don't know how to explain my tradition to those who doubt that I can be a good American. And so that was one impetus for the class. And then the other one was related to the leisure activities and other forms of, um, of ritual that, including the Maulid that, um, that I discussed earlier. And that is because the web community, they saw themselves as, as 
wanting to stay within this realm of Sunni traditionalism. So it was very much, it was very important for them to want to be a part of that tradition of fiqh, um, of Islamic jurisprudence, of trying to use these um, old tools, right, to, to weigh in on modern problems and to understand what God expects of Muslims in their contemporary society. They, on the one hand, wanted to be able to access those tools and they wanted their instructor to, to teach them, right, um, about them. They, um, they also wanted to um, justify their use, you know, their, their, the, the rituals around, uh, around leisure, right, that, they, that these were entirely acceptable for Muslims to do, that the maulid, for example, was acceptable. So they, um, so this was very much part of the, the kind of impetus for, for the class and, you know, the political context made it, made it all the more pressing that they engage these, um, these kinds of, these kinds of questions. And, um, you also take a look at, a a, a woman's book mm-hmm. club, which, uh, was also really interesting. Um, because I was expecting different books at first on their reading list, uh, but it, it all makes sense in the in the way that they constructed it over time. But um, so how do, how do these uh, book clubs operate, and what topics and themes drew the the group's attention, um, and and how did you see this this book club as a way to illuminate some of the questions or issues of the web community? Right. So the web book club came came about again as the sort of the idea within this third space that if you're a member and you want to propose a activity, you should just do that and then you plan it. And the web um, under the web foundation, it was it was fairly open in terms of what um, in terms of what could be proposed and, and what they would sponsor as, as part of their organization. So several pretty long-standing members decided, female members decided that they wanted to hold a book club and as a way to just essentially not not necessarily to discuss devotional literature or even necessarily Muslim related books, though many of them were, um, they read a whole range of different of different texts. And as I describe, you know, it's it's fairly idiosyncratic based on the the members and their particular interests. Um, but one of the the important things to come out of the book club was the realization that <clears throat> and and I the realization that for many American Muslims, the debates over gender norms and gendered religious authority are often taking place, taking place in these less visible spaces. Um, So as I talk about the um, many, or I shouldn't say many, um, some women at web identify as feminist explicitly. Some of them do not. And some of them reject the label altogether. But the vast majority of them believe that women should play more um, public roles in American Muslim communities. So um, they argue that women should, for example, um, serve on mosque boards in greater numbers. They think that more um, women should be authors and should be teachers. And in the case of the web community, um, many of the the most public uh, figures in the organization are women. 
<clears throat> so there is um so there are there is this shared gendered concern um in the web community so it it runs I would say complementary to the efforts to emphasize Muslim men as nurturing fathers. The flip side to this is for Muslim women to become more prominent in leading their communities in a public way. So the book club was um, one of these spaces where the women who participated really took on these questions concerning authority um, and questions surrounding sexism and misogyny, not just in Muslim communities, but also around, you know, in American society more broadly. Um, And, you know, much like I would say book clubs um, in the United States more broadly, this space was also, um, you know, it was a ritual space where women set aside a particular time every week or every couple weeks to come together and read and discuss books as ways of right attending to their own uh, personal questions around their place in the world, around politics, around family, um, and and again, it, it was a it was a site for this sort of self exploration and even self realization. Um, and I found that while web members were hesitant to, to talk about feminism directly in, in, for example, classes on the Quran, that where I think that it was much more, expl- uh, more, much more implicit in the context of, um, of the book club, the women were, um, were very much willing to sort of talk about what feminism might mean to them as, as Muslims. Um, and they really reveled in the opportunity to kind of be a bit transgressive, to to kind of go for the shock value in some cases, and um, and to and and to really kind of probe at what they consider to be the edges of their tradition. So, um, and I and I think that again, these are these are spaces that are are not easy to sort of find or <laughs> to observe. But they are, I think, very important for understanding how um, what is happening for gender, the sort of um, potential transformations in gender practice, and also um, to look at the sort of many sources uh, that American Muslim women and men consult when they are um, when they are sort of trying to extrapolate what they what they want their community to look like, right, and what their place is in society more broadly. So the women were were equally critical of American Muslim uh, communities as they were about workplace. I mean, this is well before right the Me Too uh, movement, but but many of those same themes came up, you know, frequently in um, in our in our conversations and. So you know it's the 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 book clubs these are these are spaces of uh, of potential right and um, and actually the book club itself was disbanded pretty soon after I finished doing um, doing field work so it's an example of the sort of fleeting nature of some of these of these spaces as well. Well, Tina, it's it's a wonderful book overall. I hope people will track it down and and read it. And I think. Uh, if not the whole book, there are several sections that would really work well in, in courses. So uh, people might want to look into that as well. Um, 
what are you working on now, though? What can we uh, expect from you down the road? I am working on a new project on the Muslim Students Association, um, which is going to look at the organization through various campus uh, case studies uh, chosen for their kind of national representation. So I'm, I'm aiming to look at different geographic regions and also different institutional types of, of college campuses and to really explore the organization's important role in shaping the direction of American Islam from its founding in 1963 to the present. Um, and I'm focusing particularly on religious and political activism as, um, as American Muslim students pursue different projects uh, on campuses across across the country. And so I'm really excited about it. I've, I've started with the with the historical archives, which is a little bit of a different tack for me as an ethnographer. But there's uh, just really a, a, a treasure trove of, of different uh, avenues to explore. So I'm really excited about it. And actually, the, the interest in the MSA came out of, of many of my, my conversations for suburban Islam, where I, I spoke to just so many people in the context of my fieldwork, both members of the web community, but also just in, in general, where um, people had very strong uh, experiences, whether positive or negative in the MSA, but that for many of them, the kind of um, activist and organizing energy came out of their, um, their student days and that those then went on to shape the types of organizations and initiatives that American Muslims took um, as you get later into into the 1980s and 90s. So that's what I have to look forward to next. Yeah, good luck. That sounds like another uh, very important project. So thank you. Well, thank you again for uh, writing a wonderful book, and thanks for making the time to talk about it. I appreciate it. it. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Justine Howe about Suburban Islam, published with Oxford University Press in 2018. Thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies.